Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and today we are again in the Moto IQ studios for another episode of Slip Angle powered by Moto IQ. I'm joined by Mike Kojima. What's up, Mike? Hey, everybody. And today on the show, we have Costa. I just forgot how to say your last name. Jalamis. Jalamis. Costa Jalamis. Sorry. Happy um, to be here. So, yeah, you just, you just happened to be in town. You know, you'd come back from Chicago, Mike tells me. And, um, you know, we're happy to have you on the show. From what I understand, from what Mike's told me, you have a very diverse background as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I've been doing this for quite a while. A uh, bunch of different types of motorsports, uh, different types of racing, uh, different types of projects in the automotive industry over the years. So, yeah, yeah, from what Mike was telling me, you you're kind of one of those guys that has your hands in a lot of things that people know about, but nobody might know who you are. So basically, um, I think most of our uh, listeners would probably know you as Matt Powers' crew chief, right? Uh, yeah, probably. Probably. Um, and so you, you're responsible for building his car, um, straightening out the pirate, pirate ship from the wreck to being an actual sort of okay car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a, a quite a big project and big task. Yeah, and uh, building and building his uh, new uh, cool car. Yes, yeah, I was involved with Matt for a couple of seasons. Um, so <clears throat> I, I guess like with uh, back in the day, like um, a lot of that stuff with Matt's car was pretty innovative, right? Like it was one of the first LS swapped uh, S chassis. Yeah, it was. Um, at the time, it was kind of the new thing to do. Uh, there weren't many of them out there yet. For us, it was really about uh, the budget constraints that we had. Um, he didn't have much money. We wanted to be competitive. Uh, it made a, the right power numbers. Uh, the price was right. Um, things like that. So those were a lot of the factors that kind of drove uh, the, the, that swap and that direction. What years were, was that? Because I know originally in the S chassis, a lot of people were doing like SR20 swaps or like, you know, KATs and stuff like that. Um, obviously, now the LS swap is pretty popular. But it sounds like from what Mike's saying, you guys were kind of one of the first to run it, you know, at least, you know, in competition. Yeah, I think it was the 2011-2012 seasons that I worked with Matt, if I remember correctly. Okay. And it was a KAT that came out of the car. Okay. Nice. Yeah, the KAT was kind of a bomb. Like, it was probably one of the most powerful ones ever built, which maybe isn't saying too much nowadays. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of trouble keeping the head gasket in it and keeping it together and uh, Matt originally went to the V8 to uh, get reliability, and I remember there was like a lot of controversy. Like his fans were angry that he was going to V8, and uh, there was like a lot of V8 hate back then. Yeah, it was a it was a new thing in the industry, and uh, a lot of the purists didn't like it. They were definitely upset about it because he was kind of the the purist guy with the ultra low car and things like that. So it was a, a big switch for him for sure. Yeah, and you kind of had to teach him to I, – I remember he was kind of like a stanced-out, stretched tire, uh, a lot of negative camber, uh, slammed to the ground uh, kind of guy that was, like, trying to do pro drifting. And um, and this car got actually pretty competitive. Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was always an amazing driver, but I think uh, his setup was definitely one of the things that was holding him back initially. And that was initially one of the debates we had was how far to go towards performance from from the look and appeal. And I guess a lot of his fan base, like, uh, uh, I guess he had a lot of, like, what I undiplomatically call fuckboy fans. <laughs> and uh, they, they loved the lifestyle and the, um, the look of his stuff and... 
I think the pirate ship was green back then or something, right? It was. And, yeah, it was green. Like sparkly green. Yeah. And then it was hard to like kind of convince him that if he wanted to continue to do this, he was going to have to change it. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of work to uh, to get the car as low as possible and still work properly. So uh, that was definitely one of the, the challenges of that project. It's a lot of like suspension re-engineering and stuff like that? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, a lot of body movements, a lot of uh, suspension pivot point movements, things okay. like that. Now, did you guys... Are you an FD? I'm not completely aware, but are you allowed to actually like modify where the subframe mounts and kind of, you know, cut it away and just at the time drop you everything? were within we were within limits. Um, okay, I don't remember the exact rules at the time, but I think you were allowed to move the the pivot points within a one inch uh, window or two inch sphere from the original pivot point, and the subframe could have gone up basically to the chassis. Okay. Not cutting into the chassis at all, but basically almost bolted up to the chassis. Okay. Yeah, they kind of changed the rule about subframe location, I, I think, because of us. But, um, yeah, and I I think we're, like, one of the first uh, LS swap teams, too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you and uh, Dai were running the uh, S13 at the time, which was, I, I thought, pretty cool because it was a, a reasonable comparison between the two, two cars. Right. Both excellent and... drivers, very, very similar cars. So it was always a... An exciting battle when they would go up, go up against each other. Yeah, and uh, you know, like I think Matt's second season, uh, the first season he had like a LS3, I think, right? No, we went straight for an LS7. Oh, it was, oh, it, wow. it was a pretty stock LS7. Yeah, oh, I, I remember. It was pretty stock, yeah. Yeah, it came out of a crashed Corvette. It was a pretty stock one. I think we put a cam, an intake manifold, uh, injectors, and a dry sump. Okay. So were the main mods of the engine. Yeah. That, that was huge power for back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I first got involved in drifting, if you had 350 horsepower, 400 horsepower, you were the man. Yeah, how, how long have you been involved in drifting? Uh, my first season in drift was 2006, I believe. Okay, as a crew chief or... Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, I worked with Reese Millen back then. Oh, wow, okay. Awesome. So, so you were doing that with him. Did you work on any of the other things that he was doing? Absolutely, back then yeah. Too? Yeah, I actually worked full-time for him in the early 2000s, in okay. 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. Okay. When he had a rally program, so helped him out with that, with that stuff and... Kind of went out and did my own thing after that. Yeah, how did you get into kind of what you're doing now? Because obviously it's it's somewhat niche, you know, doing fabrication and stuff like that. But, you know, take us back. Like, what made you fall in love with cars to begin with? I mean, I'd always had kind of a passion for cars and motorsports and things like that. Uh, my first real opportunity in pro motorsports was in about the 98 season. Uh, I got an opportunity to go work with Rod Mill and Reese's dad. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was shortly after high school for me. So when he was doing all the Pikes Peak stuff? or Pikes Peak and okay. short course off-road. Okay. So that was kind of my first professional motorsports experience. Wow. Jumping straight into it, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I got the opportunity to work, learn the right way the first time. Yeah. So that was great for me. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I uh, went to work for Reese, uh, ran his rally program for a couple of seasons, and then went out and kind of started my own business. Okay. Um, started doing fabrication, prep, builds, things like that. Uh, and at that point, Reese got the uh, Pontiac contract. So we started building the Solstice mm -hmm. and campaigning that for a couple of seasons, and then a Hyundai Genesis. So I worked with him on that stuff. As, and that's kind of when I first worked with Dai as well, Okay, uh, when Dai ran the GTO. Okay. Yeah, where did where did you meet Mike? Uh, probably around that same time, I would think. Maybe 2010, something like that, like that, I would say. Maybe 2009? Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay. And, yeah, like, uh, so... I, I think basically you're doing anything for die that wasn't related to Falcon. Right. And, um, and I think we worked on like turning the 350 Z from a show car to something that die could actually compete in. 
Yep. Yep. And, and that was that was the first thing. Um, <laughs> now I guess the second thing is, um, you know, Moto IQ used to have a road race series, mm-hmm. and uh, I was campaigning one of uh, my centras in that, and uh, Costa was the uh, crew chief on, on that, and I won the championship in, in that too. And that was his like first real venture in road racing, I think too. I it think, was, right? yeah. That was a new new uh, aspect for him. That's when he used to turn on the turn signals when he was passing because he thought he, <laughs> it was more polite to do that. <laughs> this is exactly where you need to block. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming around on this side. Here, here's a heads up. <laughs> nice. So you know, from all of your various experiences from working in motorsports and kind of being behind the scenes, but obviously a huge, huge part of it. What are some of the things that you have learned that maybe say like an amateur um, can kind of implement into their program? You know, if they're just crewing or building themselves. Yeah. So for me, there are different lessons to be learned from every type of motorsport. Um, Off-road, you learn how to prepare cars. Uh, Drifting, you learn about steering angle and power and lowered suspension and things like that. Uh, Road racing, you learn about power and braking and handling. Um, So to me, one of the biggest things that's lacking in the amateur ranks is car preparation. Uh, So for me, the the off-road is where I really learned how to prepare a car properly. And the the preparation on the cars is i would say what was what's lacking for sure the time and attention to detail uh the fine details is really really what makes the difference between winning losing breaking things like that yeah i mean especially in the professional ranks everything has to be tip-top shape you know everything has to be easily serviceable as well so when you were building cars or you know when you're building cars like you still are you know what are some things that you kind of keep in the back of your mind that you feel make your builds have those like little special touches. Yeah, serviceability is definitely a huge part of it. Um, usually, I'm the one one of the people who is having to work on the vehicle as well, so it's certainly one of the things we think about when we build them. Um, overall strength, reliability is a huge part of it, obviously as well. Um, future potential developments, uh, directions you may potentially want to go with the vehicle, uh, different avenues, different types of motorsport you may want to use the vehicle for. So we try and think about all those types of things when we build a vehicle, for sure. Okay. Now, what's, you know, this is a question for both you and for Mike. What's one of the big differences in setting up, say, a drift car from a road race car? I would say very very little, actually. Uh, Steering angle is probably one of the biggest things. But overall, um, when I I started out, it was much different. Okay. It was more about uh, high spring rates, uh, lowered cars, high tire pressures, things like that to make them able to break loose and run high on the banks. Um, But as things progressed, as the power levels came up in Formula Drift, um, they became much and more, much more closely aligned with their setups, I would say. Would okay. you agree with that? Uh, yeah, like, I, uh, it's the same thing. When when I first started, it was narrow tires, hard tires, um, uh, high pressures, and, you know, that's how you're able to, like, make a 400-horsepower car kill it. But, yeah, as everything got more and more technical and started to become wider, wider stickier tires, uh, suspension setup for, to get as much grip as possible, uh, a lot of power to keep everything going, like even though it had a lot of grip and uh, the lateral G's probably went from like 0.75 to like nowadays well over one. Um, yeah, even in Matt's car, we were seeing, I think, one, 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 two, one, three in those oh. times. Yeah, and uh, we see we see one, two all the time and like one, four and like even on the bank courses, we see like 2.2 G's. And wow. 
you know, this is with uh, tires, like not even um, our compound or anything. And uh, it's just the cars are so hooked up. And I, I, I guess, like, to me, the biggest differences between the drift car and a road race car are, uh, well, the brakes, uh, the steering angle, and aero. Okay. Um, like, drift car brakes are kind of designed, like, not to stop the car from high speed so much, but as kind of like a turning aid. To, like, make small corrections and stuff like that. Although um, the latest the latest technology with the latest things, with the super high-powered drift cars that are really gripped up, like when you're on the uh, uh, high-banked uh, big ovals like Seattle or Irwindale, is, uh, the driver usually just keeps the throttle pinned. I mean, before they would do, like, e-brake initiation or clutch mm-hmm. kick and... Normally, they just, like, floor it and, and just drive in the drift now, and they just keep the throttle pinned, and they use left foot braking to control the the attitude of the car, like how much angle and its position on the bank. Yeah. So the front brakes are holding back big sticky tires and 1,000 horsepower. So actually, uh, I guess in your heyday, it was like a, like a four-piston caliper with a solid front rotor, like a really lightweight, like maybe two sprint car brakes almost in the front but but now you're seeing um you know six piston ventilated like 32 millimeter ventilated rotors that are about uh 100 like 335 to 350 hmm. you know almost like road racing brakes. just because the brakes are getting used that much more yeah. than they used to be just because the driving style has progressed because the cars have allowed them to and a lot of times like at the high speed courses you see the brakes glowing red hot and and things really it was interesting. The first time that I'd ever, you know, was sliding a car and started working on left foot braking, I was actually working at the Porsche Experience Center, and Kyle Mohan was in the passenger seat, and we were over on, like, the slick track, and he was like, hey, man, like, use a little bit of your left foot on the brake right here, and it'll help, like, tuck the front end a little bit. I was like, all right, cool. And, like, like a light bulb went off. I was like, wow, that's freaking awesome. So, you know, one thing that I noticed was that when the you know the tail ends of the car is like really out there and you're really just like fully committed and you have to make a small correction it can really help a lot so like literally sitting with him and like that light bulb went off completely changed how i thought about everything yeah absolutely that's a technique that's been been employed in uh rally for a lot a lot of years and it only recently i think came into drifting i think Odie was maybe one of the first who started doing it hmm. at least uh commonly or maybe uh Who's a big uh, Tanner Faust is a big left foot breaker. Yeah, Tanner did left foot break quite often. Actually, that's right. Now, have you guys ever done a setup where you stagger, depending on the course, where you stagger brake compounds left to right? You know, f- to compensate for certain things, or no? Front to rear, I have, but never left okay. to right. Okay. Yeah, never left to right. Okay. I'm just wondering how that would affect it. You know, on like say at Irwindale or something, when you're up on the banking, you know, if the right was, or sorry, the left side or the driver's side was breaking a little bit more, you know, than the left. Or, sorry, than the right. I mean, I know the outside tires are way more heavily loaded. Yeah. But, um, you know, like, they don't use their brakes that much other than as attitude control nowadays. So if you ever wonder how they can be hauling ass on the bank and get so much angle and and stay up there, I mean, it's usually because they're left foot braking while they're keeping the throttle pinned. Okay. And, and how they make so much tire smoke and stuff like that. So, um, brakes are a lot more important than they used to be. Now, when 
you know, when those cars are out there, are you guys actually data logging everything when the cars are running? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the things, you know, that that you look for in those data logs? You don't have to give away, like, the whole secret sauce. I mean, but... really, anything the rules will allow you to and budgets allow you to. Okay. Uh, budgets are typically one of the bigger constraints. Uh, but anything we can get our hands on, the more data, the more information we have to make informed decisions, the better, I think. Okay. So do if you guys have a like, full system where you guys are reading like tire temps and brake temps in real time and everything, too? Uh, for us, we haven't been able to get the wheel, tire temp sensors to be able to read for very long. Okay, they just get either all, get covered up. And, they get covered up. Or, or they, burned out. <laughs> or they can't penetrate through, through the, the smoke. smoke. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, but, you know, we measure, like, wheel travel, uh, GPS, uh, all the engine parameters, so we're we're looking at everything. Okay. Yeah, it's actually now that I think about it, it's a lot more in depth than I originally had perceived. You know, for me, being a road race guy, you know, it's kind of my background. I've I've slowly, well, not slowly. I was a huge drift fan back when I, you know, was a kid. Uh, I remember I told Mike before I went to my first drift event uh, at Charlotte Motor Speedway in like 2001 or 2002. It was like U.S. Drift Nationals way back in the day. Um, and like enjoyed it and then got an S2000 and got into like autocross and road racing stuff. I was like, ah, oh, those drift guys, whatever. And then when Gridlife started doing a lot of drift stuff, that's when I really started to pay a lot more attention. And it's kind of the same thing for me with NASCAR. You know, you're like, ah, oh, well, how like how advanced is I really? But then when you really dig in deep, there's a lot, a lot going on. So I'm kind of finding the same thing with drifting now. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, NASCAR, in particular, these days is is, are, is big money motorsports, so they're they're involved with every bit of data logging they can get their hands on. Yeah. Now, from your time in the off road racing industry, I've noticed that budgets for off road racing seem to be a little bit higher than some of the others, just because you tear stuff up and you have twenty to thirty thousand dollars shock packages and stuff like that. Right. I mean, if you is that something that you've noticed yourself from back then? I wouldn't necessarily notice that it, or say that it's it's gone up significantly. Okay. Um, it's always been a very, very expensive style of motorsport. Um, it's expensive to go play there, for sure. Um, I mean, I've, I've involved with uh, one team during the Baja 2000 where they spent over $2 million just to campaign that one event. <laughs> That's ridiculous, man. So yeah, I was down in Ensenada for the Baja 500. And just looking at, you know, the support and what it costs to actually fill the truck in a shorter race like that. It makes, you know, racing like a World Challenge weekend, unless you're in like the super, super like prototype class, look cheap. Yeah. <laughs> like it looks very affordable compared to that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there are 30 plus uh, class one cars, 40, 50, 60 trophy trucks, spec trophy trucks, and almost all of them have helicopters, chase planes, two, three, four chase trucks that are fully equipped with with uh, parts, equipment, people, things like that. Yeah. And then all the logistics, getting all that stuff up and down the peninsula. Yeah. I was going to say as crew chief, you know, that's probably a big thing. Thing is making sure everything's there, making sure all of the trucks are staged properly where they need to be with the proper supplies um, and stuff like that. So it's it seems like a logistical nightmare almost. <laughs> yeah, it really is, especially in desert racing. Just having all the people at the right place at the right time with the correct parts where they need to be with the correct fuel, tires, etc. It's a it's a it's a big undertaking. Yeah. Now, I know, Mike, you used to do some off-road support, like with Ivan Stewart and stuff. I think you were talking about on, on the show that we originally did with you. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. Yeah. Like, I quickly found out that I didn't like it. No? <laughs> it, it was too much hurry up and wait, and um, um, that was the main thing, was hurry up and wait and uh, uh, <clears throat> just uh, 
jamming around the the dirt for hours and hours and hours. I mean, it was fun the first time, but then it got kind of old. So then I decided, hmm, I think I like road racing better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you typically don't see very much. You'll be sitting out in the desert for hours waiting for your car to come by. Sometimes it never shows up or doesn't show up for six hours past when it was supposed to be. Sort of like maybe war or something (laughs) like that. What's crazy to me is just all the technological advancements, you know, like back when Mike was, you know, out with Ivan Stewart, there weren't exactly like GPS trackers to where you could see like if the vehicle was still moving. And, you know, I guess you had radio communications and stuff like that. But other than that, there really wasn't a whole lot versus now, you know, you can get real time feedback on even data from the car, Mm -hmm. you know, what the fuel levels at and everything like that. Yeah, all the teams will pretty much have some sort of a blue force tracking system where they can see where all their chase trucks are, all the uh, vehicles are, all the race trucks are, obviously, um, satellite communications, things like that. So you've got communications all up and down the peninsula, uh, typically a relay plane or a helicopter to relay communications if the satellites aren't working. So, yeah, all the uh, all the all the bases are covered. And what's you know, for you, what's the most I guess the most challenging event that you have been a part of? Each really has their their own challenges. Pikes Peak is definitely an interesting one and an individual challenge in its own um, because of the changing conditions, especially when I first got involved, uh, part- a portion of it being tarmac and a portion being gravel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Baja was probably, would probably be the, the one that I'd have to point to, if anything. Okay. Yeah, Baja just seems absolutely ridiculous. It's actually, it's really, really cool, you know, to think about those races. Um you know, like I said, I've only been to the 500. I want to go to the 1,000. You told me something new. I didn't even know the 2,000 existed. Um, so that's even more daunting. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a special event that they did uh, oh, okay. during the year 2000. It was the okay. Millennium Race that they, okay. did, they did. So that's why I probably haven't heard of it. Yeah, it was uh, from Ensenada down to Cabo is where it finished. Okay. And zigzagging all the way across the peninsula, back, back and forth, all the way down. I know I've watched like a couple documentaries and stuff where like even just finding fuel sometimes, even just for the chase trucks can be tough, let alone like fuel for the actual race vehicle. Absolutely, yeah. Just because there's a, a fuel station that you know is there doesn't necessarily mean it has fuel. Yeah. So pretty much if you get below uh, three quarters of a tank and you see a station, you pretty much just stop and top it up. Yeah. And you're literally like out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that's, that's ridiculous. You carry like 150 gallons sometimes. The race cars do, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you pretty much have to be reliant on yourself. So you have to be prepared for any scenario, any situation, have all the stuff you need to repair anything, including the chase trucks. Yeah. I mean, that prepares you really well for being a crew chief for pretty much any motorsport after that. Absolutely. Yeah. And the preparation of the cars has to be second to none. Yeah. If you uh, if you miss anything, the cars aren't going to finish. They're not going to go more than a few miles, really. So obviously, you know, a race like King of the Hammers and stuff wasn't around back then when you were doing that. But I'm interested to know if you, you know, have been out to King of the Hammers or done anything crew chief wise for any of that stuff. I haven't worked with any of the teams yet. I'm definitely aware of the race and seen what they're doing there. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Uh, I like what they're doing there for sure, and it's very similar to Baja in those regards. In the, in the regard, the preparation has to be ta- spot on. Uh, the vehicles are getting more and more capable. Uh, it started out really as just rock crawling. Um, the guys wanted to go a little faster and do something kind of more fun with their vehicles than just crawl around the rocks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really cool to see what they're doing there. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, those purpose-built vehicles that can do 120 miles an hour across the desert, but then bomb up all the washes and everything and, you know, up through the boulder fields and still stay together through the whole thing is pretty, it's pretty amazing, to be honest. Yeah, they're just about tanks. Yeah. All-wheel drive, high horsepower, uh, big suspension travel, and very, very capable. Yeah. So. I, I kind of think, 
you know, like, wouldn't you say drifting was one of the big things? Because, like, when we got involved, like, nobody knew what they were doing. Yeah, there, I'd say there are very few builders who were building nice cars, especially when I first got involved. And no one understood the engineering and technology of what it would take to make a drift car work. Like, I mean, for road racing, you can read Milliken. You could read Simon McBreath to learn about aero. And then road racing's been around for so long, there's, like, all the hit technical history of it. So so basically you're trying to win by uh, not so much innovation, but, like, maybe more technical attention to details in, in road racing. And maybe uh, it's such a mature sport, too, that the innovation has been largely legislated out of most forms of road racing. But... I, I know for myself and you about the same time too. When we got involved in drifting, uh, there was no references, there was no advice, uh, no no kind of engineering data or anything on what it took to build a proper drift car. And we had to, like, I think, I, I mean, I think I was maybe the first real engineer involved in drifting, maybe. And you're like probably one of the first real. Um, outside of the tuner crowd, uh, professional motorsports guys involved? I mean, yeah, I would say it was uh, pretty much a grassroots motorsport when I first got involved, and there was certainly no books to tell you how to do it. Uh, and it was almost street tuner-ish, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, <clears throat> and I think, like, uh, you know, like, maybe I'm the guy that started the suspension revolution in drifting, and uh, um, I, th I think when we got involved, that was the start of the dawn of like the 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 really high tech really engineered drift cars and and it's been like it it sparked like a big race to where instead of the driver being the main thing the car started to become a big part of the equation too I think yeah for sure when I first got involved like I said the the car didn't need to have need to be very anything very special they were literally held together with tech screws um <laughs> so we were certainly on the leading edge of taking an engineering approach to building drift cars and tuning drift cars for sure now, when did when did angle kits become a thing? Uh, probably mid two thousands, I would say. Okay. Yeah, I think the, um, yeah there there were a couple of companies doing it, but the quality was fairly low, things like that. But over the years, they've uh, there's been a market really, so there's a, a bigger market and more reason for companies to uh, go out and develop products and yeah. things like that. I think at least from an outsider's perspective, I'd say that the development of that to me, progress the sport more than almost anything else. That's a big part of it, for sure. It made, yeah. it, it made it easily available, right? Yeah. It made it to where you can buy the kit of parts off the shelf, put your car together, and go out and be reasonably competitive and yeah. have a reasonable car. And just even as a driver, you know, for me, um, sometimes if the car's sliding and you're at full lock, there's really not much else that you can do. But if you can extend what full lock actually is to where you can continue guiding the front of the car, you know, you can get away with a lot lot more it seems like absolutely yeah it's always a saver yeah. in any type of motorsport really the the more steering angle you can get uh while it's well working well yeah is is huge you like try to do like a reverse and things like that yeah like try to do a reverse entry without an angle kit like it's not gonna work right <laughs> so at least from a from a spectator standpoint i think that to me really made the sport a lot lot different made it more attainable at the very least yeah yeah and I, I think, too, like when angle kits started coming out, like a lot of them were just basically variations of the stock spindle with a shortened, um, you know, front front arm to mm -hmm. like um, speed up the ratio with no regard to 
like bump steer or Ackerman or, or anything. And, you know, like a lot of the companies were doing it would just like place the tie rods anywhere. So yeah. you would see horrendous bump steer and, uh, um, Odd, odd Ackerman, even like anti Ackerman, and uh, but nobody even really understood that. I think. Yeah, feel and feedback wasn't a, a factor that they thought about. I think when they designed some of those early kits, the steering feel and feedback was terrible on some of those first kits that I felt. And and I know for ourselves, like we didn't even know, like how much Ackerman or what kind of Ackerman curve, and the only the only way we we're able to like get an idea of what we wanted was. Uh, I mean, just Chris, test it, like trial and error? Well, Chris Eimer designed a, a spindle where uh, we could change the Ackerman uh, really easy on hmm. by just, like, dropping in pills. Mm -hmm. And then he designed the steering rack so it was on long bolts with sliders, basically, so we could just move spaces around to change the, the tie rod angle uh, by rack position so we could change the overall Ackerman and the Ackerman curve. And it took a lot of testing and experimenting to find something. And it, it like, well, there's no like rules or rule guidelines or anything. And we had no idea. I mean, like, we had some ideas about what what it would do for the car's dynamics, but mm -hmm. we didn't know for sure. Now, as crew chiefs for setting up stuff like that, is that something that's tunable per the course or for like for the actual event? Or is stuff like, you know, the Ackerman and everything, do you guys normally set that and that's kind of like the baseline and it doesn't get touched throughout the course of an event? I would think that it's, it differs per course. Okay. You know, different courses require different setups, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, like for us, we don't, once we found like what Dai prefers the most, we hard, we only change it for certain courses. Okay. Um, and, and mostly what it is is, um, you know, as, as drift cars get more and more grip, uh, sometimes it's hard for the driver to fill the outer zones because the car wants to shoot forward. So instead of like stepping on the gas and the car wanting to drift outward, uh, our cars are so grippy that sometimes when you're doing that, you step on the gas and the car wants to shoot straight. Oh, really? So what we do is uh, we can play with the Ackerman and and we have like we get the Ackerman to a certain zone, you know, we call it the crab zone. So the car will actually crab sideways while it's drifting. So that can enable him to, uh, fill zones while the car is really grippy. Hmm. And, and for certain types of certain tracks, we, we might do that. Okay. It, but dives getting to, to the point where he could, uh, change his driving and change his line slightly. And, uh, he's, like he's evolving as a driver as the sport's evolving so you know it's not that often but we have the ability to solve problems like that right you know one thing that's been interesting to me at least from the the road racing perspective is you know as a driver you're constantly progressing you're constantly changing the setup but at what point do you know that it's proper to change the setup to get more or to change your driving habits you know obviously you have a lot of conversation as crew chiefs you know with the drivers and kind of thinking about setup you know, when, when are some key moments where you should look at maybe modifying your driving more than modifying the actual setup? I mean, to me, that's what, one of the areas where data logging is a huge advantage if you, if you have it versus if you don't. Um, quite often, a driver thinks they're doing something, but you actually look at the data and find they're doing something totally different than what they think they're doing. Hmm. Um, so you'll find a lot of driving issues, and you can solve a lot of driving issues there. 
Um, and if you you find that all the driving is correct and there is an issue, and which will typically show up in the data as well, um, you can make changes around it. And there are a whole bunch of different things we can change to to change the characteristics of the car. Okay. Now, when when did you in your career start kind of utilizing data logging a little bit more? Probably the first time I got to play with data logging was around 2001 or so, okay. 2000, 2001. Okay. And that was in uh, really the very first uh, type of motorsport was uh, the short course off-road. Hmm. It was a Toyota-funded team or Toyota-backed team. Uh, TRD was heavily involved, uh, so they had a, a really nice data logging system, mostly supporting the engine. Okay. Uh, so I kind of got my first experience and wet my, teeth, uh, wet my teeth on it there. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of as data logging has progressed, you kind of started with the basics because that's all that was really economically feasible at the time right and then as things became more i guess more affordable you know in racing programs you kind of kind of added that to your your repertoire of and, data. The, and the value of it becomes more apparent as well as time yeah. goes on yeah so it, it becomes a more of a worthwhile expenditure for a team yeah yeah who would have thought mike like from back in the day when you were doing a lot of stuff to where everything is now i mean it's just it seems like it's changed so much yeah i mean uh I, I think when I first got involved in drifting, it was a lot of like rolling your eyes when you would see like a lot of these cars. Um, you know, like back then, it was like a lot of the cars were for looks, and nobody had a clue. And um, uh, like certain courses, like New Jersey, where they cross across the bottom where it's bumpy, the cars would just hit the bumps and go out of control. <laughs> and uh, just a bunch of bump steer issues. Uh, bump steer and bouncing off the bump stops and having really bad shocks. I, I, I think our team was the first one to go with three-way adjustable shocks. Okay. Um, like, I don't think anybody in FD or drifting had ever seen shocks at that level of sophistication before. But um, I think we, we made quite a stir where, uh, you know, we can go full throttle over, over bumps and even like the bank transitions, like coming from the bank down to the infield and our car would just soak it up like a like a buggy, um, you know. That made a lot of people take notice, and I mean, our our S thirteen was known to be like, uh, you know, it it probably had one of the lowest po uh, lowest power of all the top cars. Mm -hmm. uh, we were like at least a hundred horsepower under all, you know, about everybody else, and two hundred horsepower below like maybe the top guys, but we were known as the the like to be one of the fastest cars and I could always like get traction and surge and catch up to, to, to anybody. Cause our car was hooked up the best and handled the best and he could stay on the throttle longer and stay on the throttle over bumps. And, um, uh, it, it was such a suspension was such a huge advantage back then. I mean, nowadays, you know, like all the top teams have a, have a chassis guy. And there's like the level of smart guys involved in the crew has stepped up in the amount of professionalism. So nowadays a guy like me doesn't make that much difference because every team has a guy like me. Now, are a lot of the, the chassis guys on the FD teams, do they come from like a road racing background or from other motorsport background or are some of them like just drift specific? That's all they've ever done? Or do you really know? I would say that they come from, shoot, uh, Road racing, rally, uh, circle track. Okay. Like some of the best guys have been circle track guys. Mm -hmm. um, like uh, like Ian Stewart's like known as a big chassis guy. He's a circle track guy, and uh, Chris Forsberg's uh, chassis guy. He's a circle track guy. Okay. And um, yeah, circle track setups kind of weird, man. I've talked to a couple circle track guys, and they run like 
four different spring rates, like a different spring rate on every single corner. And you're like, how in the heck? But when the car is built to do one thing, it kind of makes makes some sense. You know, for, for drift cars, do you guys ever set them up different left, right? Kind of like some of the circle tracks are? In terms of camber and tow, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would typically run same springs left and right. Uh, they would differ front and rear, obviously. Um, but wheel rates would be different front to rear as well. Okay. And, but, and, and, but for sure, camber, tow, things like that would be different side to side. Okay. We actually, like, wedge the car quite a bit to... Um, uh, but, you know, like the way we wedge the car is like often like backwards of what a circle track would guy would do, because nowadays with the amount of horsepower the car makes, like the FD rules say the tires have to last two laps. Oh, really? And your outside tire uh, wears the fastest. So a lot of times we wedge the car the opposite way. So the inside to get the least amount of wear on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we could equalize the wear and we so we can make it two laps. Okay. That that's something that's come up since you've been involved, but yeah, it was going that direction. We were definitely starting to see issues with making tires last, um, but not to the level you guys are these days. Yeah, a lot of times we tune around tire life nowadays. Um, like we can make the cars hook up even harder, but the you know like they might only last one one lap. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that I guess you're just having to adapt with with the rules. So how do you guys measure tire wear? Because obviously if the tires are shredded on all four corners, you know, how do you really like know which one or I guess not all four corners. It's kind of more just the rears. Um, but how do you how do you measure that? How do you know which one or and how to like, I guess, change ride height and stuff like that and set the car up to a certain way so that both of them essentially like detread at the same time? So by taking tire temperatures is one of the best ways. Okay. Um, obviously, you can look at the tread depth um, if you catch it quick enough or if you can do that during testing. Yeah. You make them do a, a half a, half a lap or a full lap and then check them after that. Okay. Uh, but during competition, really, the only thing you can do is probably uh, tire temperatures. Okay. So like with us, what we do is we try to do all the conventional adjustments first. to So we compromise the amount of grip the car has the least amount. And if we're still getting differential wear and having trouble getting the outside tire to last um then we start to de-wedge the car okay um and de-wedging reduces performance somewhat but then if you don't have tires toward the end of the course you you actually average better for two runs than if you didn't do it now how much does the handling of the car change as the tires degrade in a situation like that um well there's things going on from a like scientific level that I think isn't well understood because, I mean, you know that a regular street tire with a UTQG of 140 should not be able to produce like 1.4 Gs in the flat turn, <laughs> right. right? So uh, I was always wondering what why that is so, and I, I couldn't figure it out. And even the tire manufacturers have no idea. But one day I was, um, you know when they came out with the red cameras? The yeah. Super HD. Yeah. So I was watching, uh, I don't know, they took a picture of the car going by, just zoomed in on the on the contact patch. And what you could see is, um, so the tire's spinning in ultra slow motion and ultra HD. Um, you could see right at the patch that the tire is actually molten and, and the, the rubber is peeling off like, you know, chewing gum, like stringy. Yeah. And and uh, once that stringiness gets about half an inch away from the contact patch, the strings start to oxidize and turn into the smoke. Huh. 
So I think what's happening is the car is actually riding on a layer of Molten um, rubber. Molten rubber. <laughs> so, like, the uh, UTQG isn't as critical. Yeah. And you're looking at uh, Coulomb's adhesion going on instead of, like, normal uh, mechanical adhesion. So it's, like, Coulomb's grip that we're getting, and huh. that's really weird. Yeah. And and that's the only way I can think of why why that's going on. Yeah, I mean, when the rubber's molten, you're essentially getting 100% contact patch between the tire and the actual surface it's like melting down into every single little piece of asphalt or cement or whatever you're on and and actually the mechanics of stickiness is actually coulomb's attraction so on a quantum level like the electrons are meshing in their last valence level and i i think that's actually what's going on and maybe that's the only way that a regular tire can make that much grip See, I'm, I'm just picturing, like, one of those, like, Fast and Furious things, you know, where there's a computer-generated thing where it takes you through, like, the engine intake and then out the exhaust. I'm just picturing that now with the tire and, like, the rubber, you know, actually touching the ground and becoming molten, <laughs> molten rubber. And, and you can actually, you know, with the red camera, you can actually see it, like, stringing away like mozzarella. Really? Or, or Velcro peeling or something, like, right. And then when it gets, like, maybe inch half inch away from the contact patch you could see the strands of molten rubber actually oxidizing i guess as they contact the oxygen in the air huh. and, and turning into the tire smoke yeah, i mean it's essentially it's a chemical process yeah that's pretty crazy <laughs> and and i i think that's what's going on um yeah it's pretty crazy yeah it's something that's well studied for racing tires, road racing tires, mm -hmm. uh, but the surface temperatures that are generated in drifting is oh, so, much so much higher than anything higher. in road racing. Yeah. Uh, it's something a little bit different that's going on for sure. I mean, what are what are tire temperatures like when somebody comes in hot off of a run? You know, because for, for road racing stuff, you're looking for 160 to 180, 190, somewhere in there. Yeah, depending on the tire. Yeah. Like, like we can't. Our rules are funny, like we can't touch the car, or, or and and so usually by the time we can get to the car, it's come off track and driven a few hundred feet before we could uh, uh, look at it. And mm -hmm. we can't use a contact pyrometer because we're not allowed to touch the car. Oh, so, really? So we have to use have to like an it? infrared. Yeah. And if generally by the time we get to it, like the temperatures are around 280. Um, Generally, we start to have problems if it's in the 300s, but okay. um, 250 to 300 is typical, and maybe 280. Yeah. And, and so that's cooled down a few degrees because the car is driven a few hundred feet uh, from the end of the course. And also, it's not a contact pyrometer, and maybe a contact pyrometer generally reads a little higher. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's. Those temperatures are so far outside the design criteria, you know, when the engineers design those tires. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've actually seen those similar numbers with uh, with the contact parameters um, during testing. And Well, sometimes we'll tell the driver to stall and drive very slowly back to the line before the, the you know, the next run to try to get, let the tire recover. Cool some. down a little bit. Yeah. 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 And then there was a, some controversy, like I think in... Got one of the FD things because we're up against uh, uh, God. Who was it? We're up against somebody, and he was on purpose driving through water puddles um, in between the runs against us <laughs> to, to get his tires at a better temperature, and he was able to beat Die. Huh. 
Yeah, there was a time when Formula Drift uh, mandated a, um, what was it, a minimum uh, hardness level. I forget exactly like what the number was. UTQG or like by an actual like durometer? Yeah, durometer they actually had a gauge. durometer. Really? They actually had a durometer they were testing cars with as wow. they came off the runs. Wow. Uh, it was found that basically all the tires were too low when they were hot. Um, but at the point, they it was being it was being pushed by a couple of specific manufacturers on a couple other manufacturers. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the tactics that was developed uh, to try and help that out yeah. initially. But it's now, hard to get – if you use a durometer very much, it's hard to get a consistent reading because you can get a durometer, stick it up against the tread, and you can watch the needle go down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as it as it deflects. Yeah, yeah. So even the technique of how you apply it to the tire as well yeah. will give you different readings. Huh. So if I if I took durometer readings, and if you took durometer readings, and if he took durometer readings, we We'd could see all, who was the strongest, right? Or we would all come <laughs> up with something different. So if you did a design of experiment, it would like be really bad. Yeah. Now, are does like does FD regulate um, that there can't be like cooling fans? For the tires, like say, as soon as the run's done and you start driving, you can have like electric cooling fans to cool the tires down as you drive. If you tried to do that, they would probably just get all torn up. No, it would probably get banned immediately. Oh, okay, because uh, um, Kevin Wells is really proactive and he's always on the lookout for like an unfair advantage that could cause the sport to escalate out of control, and. Um, so he knows the teams that have innovators, and I think he looks extra carefully at them. Oh, yeah. And, and he, he he works really hard to try to keep everything fair. Okay. And, um, yeah, like, I've been on the wrong side of his judgment a few times, but, I mean, I understand. And um, we had some really cool ideas that he wouldn't let us do. But, I, I like, whenever we want to innovate, we always get permission from, you know, we're really transparent, and mm -hmm. we try to get... We uh, actually, you know, have him look at the CAD or ask him to come down and uh, get permission from him first. Okay. Now, have you guys ever experimented with different types of inert gases in the tires than just regular, you know, regular I air? think I, it's, it's not regulated, allowed, right? Uh, at the time, nitrogen was allowed. I've used nitrogen in the past for sure. That, okay. that made a big difference for sure. Okay. At least in the consistency of your tire pressures, if nothing else. Right. I know, like, my um, our, our sponsor, Falcon, did not want to do nitrogen. I mean, I asked for it, and they said no, and I wasn't, you know, that's their call. So, um, yeah, but I, I guess basically we compensate. We have to set some cold temperature based on what we want the hot temperature to be. Mm -hmm. And it's always a trick to, you know, get the pressure low enough to where it doesn't, get too high and and you don't want to go too low or the tire could db but um generally we leave the line at some amazing if you're a road racer you'd be shocked at how low the pressures we run are yeah i mean you can sit sometimes like in the paddock or like before runs start and actually see you know and the the tires sometimes don't look like they have that much air in them at all well like the teams that run nitos for instance they run seven to nine psi yeah. And yeah, like you're sitting there walking by, and you're like, "That tire's about to go flat." Like, I think they might have picked a nail up. And then you look around, and you're like, "Nope, that's how everybody has it." Yeah, on that front, I've uh, seen some slow motion video as well of the tires actually wrapping up, like a like you've seen the video of the like dragster drags. tires and things like that. Wow, that's crazy. Um, I I know from our experience, uh, the tires will gain about four to six psi during the burnout process. Um. You know, like the burnout's getting more and more 
tricky and needs to be controlled nowadays too because uh, we only have so much tread mm -hmm. so the idea is like the driver to like bring the tire up to temperature quickly but without um you know excessively wearing it out so now you see more elaborate burnouts so you see the driver doing figure eights and circles mm -hmm. like without really spinning the tire and what he's kind of trying to do is scuff it in and bring the tire up to temp without actually wearing it out. Okay. And then he'll do some short, violent figure eights and circles, but not like before. Huh. Now, does FD, I guess, regulate the tread depth of tires from new? It has to be like a DOT level. Okay. And uh, the tire has to be available to the general public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, some tire companies were building drift-specific tires with thicker uh, tread rubber, mm -hmm. uh, but since it was available to the public, um, they Did you get away with it. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And the UTQG uh, game is, you know, that's a voluntary standard too. So I think like there's some tweaking going around. The manufacturers are, you know, like putting different compounds that may not necessarily be long-lasting. Yeah, having having worked for a tire manufacturer in the past, you'd be very, very surprised at how those standards are actually set. Essentially, there's one company that makes all the test tires, um, and they get tested, and then that's what everybody compares their tires against. But they only have to test one tire against that tire, one of theirs, and then they can measure all of the remainder of their lineup against that one tire that they tested for that standard. Well, UTQG so, is purely voluntary. Oh, now, yeah, now it's completely voluntary. You know, like there's people there's people out there that are manufacturing quote-unquote, you know, street tires that are almost as sticky as like a freaking Hoosier, you know? Yeah, like that's why the uh, street class time attack times have been plummeting in yeah. recent years. yeah. But if you if you look at the street class tires, I mean, obviously you guys are driving on the same tires essentially that those street class time attack guys are running. And then there's a lot of the big endurance racing, like amateur endurance racing, where they require a 200 treadwear tire. You know, essentially in performance motorsports, especially grassroots type stuff, you know, those tires that's the bread and butter. That's where you know a majority of of motorsport run on those street class tires. I, I think drifting has actually, you know, improved the quality of tires that um, regular people can get nowadays. Oh, yeah. I, I, when we first started, remember tires used to blister and delaminate and de-bead? And... Absolutely, yeah. I've worked with a couple of tires uh, that that was a big issue with, and you very, very closely had to control your temperatures, pressures, things like that. Nowadays, nowadays I think they have a much larger operating window. Right, and you can roast them and they won't blister. And... Um, they just wear nicely to the end, and um, uh, no blistering. The tires are pretty consistent nowadays. I, like I, I think drifting has kind of forced the the manufacturers that participate to improve their game a lot. Yeah, I mean it. It makes a lot of sense, you know, especially if if they're essentially running on, you know, tires that you know you or I could just run into the tire shop and maybe not buy off the rack because very few places keep tires like that on the rack but they could get them like the next day or so well, well and i think like a lot of time attack people don't realize but like why a lot of the street class tires are getting quicker is basically based on what the manufacturers have learned from drifting hmm. yeah, i mean what sort of things at least that you can talk about 
Um, do you record on, you know, on tire wear and stuff like that that you report back to the manufacturers? Um, can't really say. Okay. <laughs> well, I can say from my previous involvement, uh, wear for sure, temperatures, pressures, mm-hmm. uh, and our just our findings on where they seem to work, uh, operating windows, things like that. Okay. And then after the fact, the manufacturers will take and cut apart their tires and see what the interiors look like, what the carcasses look like, things like that after we've burnt the hell out of them. Yeah. So yeah, so those people that are walking around after an FD event with all the uh, you know all the tires that they got, those are essentially you know test beds, you know where not test beds. I mean it's a you know an actual tire that was legal for competition, but you know that might be valuable to uh, to somebody somewhere. Again, any bit of information <laughs> you can get, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, the more informed your decisions will be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the improvement in tire technology is pretty incredible. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even just from my standpoint, from doing track stuff, looking at like what street tires were capable of on track from 2010, 2011, 2012 to where they are now, it's ridiculous. You're seeing lap times that are seconds and seconds faster, mm-hmm. you know? Compounding, construction, yeah. every area of the tire. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that's come out of drifting. And yeah, probably a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that, you know, the more you think about it, it's it's a very stressing test for the tires that, you know, manufacturers seem to be taking advantage of to progress their product lineup. I think a lot of it's about a return on investment for the manufacturers. Yeah. They get involved. Uh, they obviously want the, the marketing aspect, um, but they look at it from a technical aspect as well, and they want to develop their tires, make a better product. Yeah. And that's the perfect place to do it. So, well, cool. Well, where can people find out more about what you are working on this season with Matt Powers and anything else you may be doing? Uh, they can look at my uh, social media stuff. I have uh, uh, most of my stuff on the Jalamis Tech uh, Instagram and also on the, the Jalamis Tech for Facebook page. <laughs> That's G-I-A-L-A-M-A-S-T-E-C-H. Got it. Cool. Well, appreciate it. Um, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, maybe we'll see you around the FD paddock sometime here soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I, I love, love being on the show. Cool. Well, appreciate it, guys. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, and come and find us in the Pit City Grid Live to say hello.